0: A well-rounded sense of perspectives on on the issue, and so I, I probably shouldn't have have said that my our thesis is that um, the WTO is indirectly responsible for protectionism because that's really what we're what we're exploring, and one reason why I. In particular wanted to talk with you in addition to your expertise on China is for your expertise on Japan because what I really want to explore is how how do countries that have very different philosophies about industrial policy foreign trade policy how how do those countries work together in global trade organizations like the WTO, or even in, in bilateral trade relationships, and, and is there something different about China and the US versus you know 30 years ago with Japan and the US?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting because Japan and China, and Korea also, all started from a very different point than the United States. Uh, they were all very highly protected economies to begin mm-hmm. with, and then they gradually the liberalized. And the US always had natural protection because of the ocean. So it was, and the fact that we were so developed. And because of the Cold War, we opened our markets wide and we sort of ignored the protection of Japan and Korea, um, Europe, also because we had security issues to worry about. and so we really—it it really didn't affect us too much. All of this protectionism around the world, and then, um, of course, the United States then started running trade deficits, and, and uh, the other countries started catching up. So. Uh, our access to their markets then became very important. And the WTO, the various rounds, the Uruguay Round, and so forth, um, the countries liberalized quite a bit under those, and also our free trade agreements like Korea. But uh, the the, uh, starting point is so different that, that we have a tradition of being very liberal. And lots more goods than our economy. whereas that's that's not the case with the WTO. And uh, you're you're right in that the WTO is uh, fairly toothless when it comes to enforcing these agreements. We uh, if, if we think that, for example, China and Japan is not abiding by the WTO commitment then essentially we just negotiate or we file a re- uh, case with the WTO, but all of these take a long time, they're very expensive, and the outcome is not certain.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, it's much
1: easier for co- companies, anyway, to go to Section 301 anti-dumping or something like that. they very great practices route, it's a little more sure.
0: I see. Okay, and and do you think there has been an increase in in that um, over the last few years? So, an increase in companies or even policymakers looking for non WTO routes to address trade concerns.
1: Well, I think in the United States, for sure. Uh, I was just looking at some of the uh, things this administration has been doing, and. Uh, so they have uh, created these various, uh, like the uh, Intellectual Property Advisory Enforcement Committee under Executive Order 13565 February 8, 2011. So this is a cabinet level interagency Senior Intellectual Property Enforcement Advisory Committee. So there's a lot of focus on protecting our intellectual Especially with China. And then the uh, administration in February of 28th of this year, Executive Order 13601, established the Interagency Trade Enforcement Center. And this is something that uh, a lot of uh, uh, labor and, and businesses that are suffering from uh, a lot of competition from imports, like, like the pushing for. It looks like the trend is toward more enforcement using our law rather than going to the WTO And uh, although we're still active in the WTO, we haven't had a WTO agreement for a long time. And so we're tending to go into the free trade agreement. And that's good as far as it goes.
0: And do you see any you know, downsides associated with using our laws for trade enforcement rather than going to the WTO? I mean, is it less efficient, or is there anything? I guess is there anything wrong with doing it that way instead? Well,
1: the, the you know, looking at it from a efficiency. The problem of using an unfair trade practice as ground, especially with respect to China, is that it goes through the Department of Commerce. The Department of Commerce tends to side with the U.S. producer. Uh, there's a, a natural bias, because they're in charge of our commerce, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, promote our commerce. <laughs> and so, if you look at some of these anti-dumping cases, You wonder how they came up with their numbers, especially with China, because they they treat China as a non-market economy, so they don't use the actual prices in China, prices from India or someplace. They come up with nothing margins that are sometimes hard to believe. And so, uh, I would guess that the the, uh, probability is that there would be greater protection Agreements or something like that. Uh, the other problem is that China tends to retaliate, and chi- uh, you know, we think our Department of Commerce is very pro-U.S. Well, China's bureaucracy is so pro-China that it, it's nothing. Uh, you know, we're nothing compared to them. <laughs> they are just blatantly pro chinese Uh huh they uh, tend, tend to retaliate very quickly. If we come up with an anti-dumping order, they will come around and they will do something against us. So it, it tends to create these, these sort of mini-trade wars.
0: Right, right. So if the WTO were more effective... And and, and I, I and I don't mean that by necessarily meaning that if the WTO had teeth, but if countries were more likely to bring cases to the WTO, um, would that be better?
1: Well, I think if we all abide abided by our WTO agreements, that certainly would help. And if China would sign on to some of these agreements, there are these lateral agreements like the government procurement program, that China still hasn't signed on to, even though they said they would. Right. That would open up government procurement to uh, other countries. Um, so there, there's the problem of, of incomplete coverage by the WTO. And the WTO tends to deal primarily with rates. And so China, in terms of reducing its tariff rate, it has been abiding, as far as I know, by its commitments under the WTO. But with China, tariffs may not be a problem because they have a dozen other ways to get at So they can they can slow the approval process. They can slow things in customs. They can just do a lot of things to you that are sort of non-tariff.
0: Right, and those non tariff barriers are there. WTO regulations that deal with those, or or not at all.
1: Well, there are, there are in the WTO WTO agreement. You know, we they sort of countries are committed to reducing non tariff barriers, but but it's so hard to specify what they are because they differ from country to country, and so, you can get around you know, what you have signed on to at the WTO about doing something else. It's very easy. So, if a country wants to be protectionist, it's a damn. The, the only little, uh, force against protectionism is that there are always some uh, businesses in every country that want to want to deal with it. <laughs> and so, you know, they pressure the government to not uh, take protectionist policy. But in China, these forces have much weaker than in the United States, and also the same true with Japan. Uh, the consumer is, is, is much weaker.
0: So, do you see then a? I mean, is there a, a different, a, a better solution to um, reducing protectionism, or is it, a, or an organic evolution as as companies that want freer trade uh, grow stronger? Well, uh, even though protectionism.
1: There, there tends to, right during a recession, you always have more forces to protect them. If the economy would ever recover, if the world would <laughs> then most likely these forces would subside sometime. But now everyone's trying to get a piece of this shrinking pie, or pie that's not growing very well. So people are trying to protect their, their, uh, their market. Kind of a natural
2: thing,
1: mm-hmm. so I think over time, because of uh, globalization, and supply chain, and communication, and everything, that companies are going to figure out how to get around the protections policies. Um, <coughs> the trend is going sort of more liberalized, trend. but anytime there's a general tr- trend of more liberalization. But then there will be certain sectors that will be pushing for more protection. Because they're going to be more and more exposed. And especially the uh, uh, sectors that are fairly labor intensive, uh, sort of medium technology that anybody can copy, like steel making. Anybody can make steel mining. So, it's very hard to protect that industry. Okay.
0: and yet that industry is pushing for protection. Right, right. So what about the, the thought that that policymakers in the United States who pushed for China's accession to the WTO didn't didn't really think about the ramifications of, of China's accession, especially for workers in the United States and for American companies that aren't multinational, that aren't part of that global supply chain. And that those have, those two groups have been really harmed by the uh, accession of China and the fact that they're not, that China is not, um, I mean, that I guess adhering to its WTO commitments isn't necessarily the right word because maybe they do but then do other protectionist uh, policies on the side. But, but, you know, that these two groups have been harmed by China's, China's policies and that there wasn't enough care taken by policymakers to prevent that from happening. Do you, do you agree with that idea?
1: Well... It, it was very difficult to foresee exactly what would happen And so I can remember when China's accession was being negotiated that there were all these studies about the probable impact and it's it's just so difficult to try to figure out exactly what's going to happen in 10 20 years And so most most of the analysis was on, was using models of trade that, say, that said, well, if you reduce tariffs by this much, which was China's commitment, then it should free up trade by this much. But, of course, with China, the models don't always work because they're always fiddling around in the background to get the policy. And with their uh, other ways of getting at uh, companies But uh, the, problem, the problem with China was either yes or no. It wasn't like half we could let them in halfway. Right. Although we, we kind of they didn't sign on to everything, but, you know, either they were members or they weren't. Right. Either they were given most favored nation status or, uh, or not. <laughs> and uh, or what in the United States we call normal trade relations status. So either that had to be made permanent or not. And at the time, we were having all of these debates every single year about whether China should be having an extension of temporary
0: normal trade relations status. And American businesses were, every time that
1: Congress would debate, American businesses would would, uh, get retaliated on. Uh, Business would sort of stop until that debate was over in the year. And so most of the businesses said, you know, let's get this thing over now. (laughs) Uh, Get them in the WTO. Get permanent Most major nations status, And let's quit this annual debate. Yeah. So those were sort of the forces pushing it. And it seemed like at the time that uh, there would be enough opportunities in China for U.S. exporters that trade wouldn't become too far out of now. No one foresaw what, what actually happened. I don't think. That that was probably China's wildest <laughs> Accumulate Three trillion dollars in foreign exchange reserves. I mean, yeah, I mean no one thought about it. no exchange rate agreement with the IMF at the same time. So they should have gone in and said, okay, you're going to have to let your currency respond to marketplace, at least within some range or something. If they'd done that earlier on, I think it would have been better. So that was was a large flaw in the view.
0: Okay. And, uh, would that have I, I, would that have made a significant difference? You know, in in the surplus that they have ac- accumulated.
1: Well, if if China's uh, exchange rate had appreciated so steadily over the last twenty years or so, uh, China could never have accumulated such foreign exchange reserves and would not have had such a large trade surplus. I mean, uh, all you have to do is look at Japan. Japan had the same problem back in the 1980s. Undervalued exchange rate from the 1970s. Bond, and large trade surplus. And then as soon as their, the yen started to appreciate it, all of a sudden Japanese goods became very expensive. They had to invest in the United States People stopped, companies stopped uh, producing in Japan, and they moved to Southeast Asia or mm-hmm. China or some other place. Right. Uh, and same thing uh, would have happened to China. China would not have been such an attractive market, although China, because of the population and size, still is attractive because it's just so
0: large. So, are there are there lessons learned from Japan's story and and Japan's evolution to eventually, you know, have a a smaller um, trade gap? And and I actually I have to confess I don't know whether you know Japan has a trade surplus or deficit. But um, are there lessons learned then from? The U.S.-Japan relationship in in the '70s and '80s and '90s that could be applied to China.
1: Yeah, the, the one lesson that that you learn from both Japan and Korea is that when a country starts industrializing, they have very rapid growth, percent per year, just like China, just like Japan, just like South Korea, and that lasts for about. 25 or 30 years, and then after about 30 years, it becomes very difficult to keep growing at 10%. And growth rate slows down to maybe 5, and then maybe 2, and <laughs> in Japan's case, 0 and mm-hmm. minus, okay. Yeah. But you just can't keep up that high growth rate forever, because after a while, you stop catching up. You're sort of caught up. And it's much easier to catch up than, than, than the past people or paid for going forward. And uh, so those who sort of project that China is going to keep growing at, at um, 8% or 10% for another 20 years, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, very difficult. But we already see growth slowing down in China. So that's. That, that's the other lesson is that the currency needs to appreciate. You know, the reason that South Korea is so competitive now is that th- during the uh, Great Recession, 2008 2009, the value of the won, the South Korean won, dropped in half. So it became very easy for them to the export. And it became very easy to sell a uh, Hyundai car that has all of these features for a very low price in fact they even guaranteed the price of gas for a while they said if you buy a new Hyundai we will guarantee you a certain gas price after I forgot what it was wow and they pay you, pay you the difference if <laughs> you just send us your receipts wow and things like that yeah. the, the yen just dropped the value of the yen just dropped
0: and was it was it the plaza accord in which japan agreed to go to a um a, a floating exchange rate
1: well the plaza accord is when the various countries agreed that they would intervene in markets to try to push up the value of the yen
2: okay uh,
1: so that's when the yen really started well it, before that it had appreciated quite a bit but it was sort of stuck it around this Positive level, and then it, then about uh, the the intervention itself was neutralized uh, within a few weeks by the market. The market, you know, there's so much foreign exchange transactions that occur every
2: mm-hmm.
1: brilliant of dollars, right? Every so what governments do is they're millions, to billions that, but it had a cycle and so, uh, traders knew that, that they couldn't count on uh, cheap yen or whatever, but it had to start reshaping.
0: Okay, and then a- at what point did Japan let the yen float?
1: Well, it was, it was floating. Okay. Uh, uh, it was kind of a managed boat. Okay. They were intervening. Appreciate it too fast. And so recently, um, well, they went for two or three years with no intervention. And just recently, an interview began because the debt's gotten too high.
2: Right.
1: It back down again. I mean, if you go to Japan and shop, you realize that the yen is much too expensive. 80 yen per dollar, 70 yen.
2: Okay.
0: So, what do you think? Uh, how how do you think then the U.S. and other countries could work together to to get China to really let its um, exchange rate go free?
1: <laughs> We've been pressuring China to do
2: that forever. <laughs> right.
1: And nothing seems to work very well. Uh, but at some point, I think uh, we're going to have to uh, officially declare that China is a manipulator of its At some point, it has to be done. Up to now, everyone's afraid of uh, retaliation. So, you know, it's just a big unknown once you start doing that. So if, if you start retaliating against China because of its currency, then there's no telling what they will do. And, but they will do something.
0: Right. But so, there and there and there's nothing within the WTO or or there's no way with to go through the WTO to
1: WTO does not deal with the Okay. That is strictly the 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 International Monetary Fund has almost no power. They they do studies and they name and they shame and things like that, but, but no real teeth. So there's, there's no mechanism in the world that sort of automatically corrects over values or undervalued exchanges. Right. Except the market.
2: Right.
0: Okay. Well, anything else, knowing sort of the, the broad strokes of, uh, of the, the topic, anything else, Dick, that you wanted to, to talk about or think that I need to, to consider? Well, uh, one thing to
1: look at is the anti-dumping cases. Because that seems to be the vehicle of choice uh, for getting protection. It's. It used to be that that anti-dumping cases were were fairly futile, <laughs> but they seem to be getting through now, and uh, there are dumping margins disasters, but uh, well, it's it seems to be a, a better route for getting protection for your industry for Americans, in America. and uh, there are dumping. The Chinese are doing the same thing uh, against the US, believe it or not. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Uh, cars and various things. So I think the, the indicator of protectionism is the dumping anti dumping cases. Okay. At least the major indication. And there's a public record for that. Right. Trend is that uh, trade continues to expand and businesses figure out ways to get around the barriers. And so, in that environment, it is natural to have to force some protection from free trade. Right. And because of WTO, you can't seem to get an agreement. countries are going for free-trading. So you get an agreement with the country you can get an agreement with
0: and forget the rest. And is, I mean, is that a, a reasonable alternative solution to just have bilateral or or, or multilateral free-trade agreements?
1: Well, the hope is, okay, is that you start out with bilateral. Then you have you have kind of a standard bilateral an free trade uh, template, and you do that with several countries. And then you combine them.
2: Okay. So
1: now we have the, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that's sort of combining a lot of these free that occurred among the countries. And countries. So we already have free trade with uh, Singapore. Australia, Chile, and so, we're going to uh, add in some other countries to an agreement. And in that agreement, they're negotiating things like intellectual property rights. And uh, if they can get kind of a, a common approach that several countries agree on, of protecting intellectual property, then that can then belong to the WTO, and there could be some agreement there among the countries that will agree. And um, gradually graduated countries will sign on to the various agreements. If you can't get a large agreement, then it's small agreed.
0: Okay. Why has uh, has anyone offered for China to be a part of the TTO? TPP or does China not want to be part of it?
1: Well, politically, it'll never happen. Okay. It's the same with Japan. Politically, it's it's just too uh, uh, too much of a a risk to try to include China or Japan. Now, Korea, we already have a free trade agreement. Of Korea, so they could easily join the TPP. And, and Japan itself is a little hesitant to reluctant to join because of agriculture. But the rice farmers are too well protected in Japan. We would lose that protection.
0: Right. So in the U.S., it's politically. Untouchable for to suggest that China and Japan join is that what you mean?
1: I would think so. Yeah, anything that gives China free, even though we're getting free access to China, but to, to say okay, we, we give China free access to the U.S. market, no tariffs, nothing, same access that Australia gets. You're going to
0: have a hard time selling that with labor and a lot of businesses. Right. And is that because of, do you think, because of a concern that China won't uphold or wouldn't uphold its commitments under the TPP, or is it about, you know, the state-owned enterprise involvement in, in cross-border business, or what's behind that resistance?
1: The ultimate, well there are two, two issues, one is the security issue, so no one really trusts when you really come down, we like friend, back to we're friends, but in fact the Pentagon is about the next door, and they're thinking about China, and the other is the large, large U.S. trade-off with China, so the feeling is, is that,
2: we should be doing something to reduce the deficit,